Uh, this is the last sermon in First Thessalonians. We have walked through this book for uh, quite some time, and it's been a delight. Um, a couple of the things that I just want to remind you before we read are that this church in Thessalonica is very much like us. It's very similar to, for, to, um, to this area, to Brazoria, to this place. It's a small town that, that really kind of wants to be, the Christians there kind of want to be left alone by the government. And they want to be able to worship in peace. And they are frustrated by the government. Remember that what we read in Acts, one of the key differences between us is that they get taxed for worshiping. Jason, the leader of the church there, gets pulled out of his home and is told to pay a guarantee that he would not cause a tr- trouble or a ruckus in the town. And they pay the guarantee, but then Thessalonica continues, this church in, Thessalonians, in, in Thessalonica continues to cause trouble simply by being Christian. Simply by being Christian and living a Christian life. They cause other people trouble. So, with that in mind, let's read this last several verses, verses, chapter 5, verse 23 through 28. Let's read together. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And may God add his blessing to the the reading and the hearing of his word. Peace is something that's elusive in our day and age, as we talked about last week, this is something that we struggle to see come to fruition here. It's an elusive task. It is a dream of mankind. In fact, all of our movies kind of lean towards or lend towards this idea that, that there is a peace that the, the protagonist will achieve at some point. All of our books have heroes who are striving to make or find or secure peace, all of our movies and all of our epic stories, all of our books that we read that have heroes that we really love end with peace because they're striving to get to peace. The ones that don't end with peace, we call horror movies. Those, those are awful and they don't end in peace. They end in chaos and they're not good and nobody goes to feast on those who is healthy. There are people who do, but they're not healthy mentally. So we see these, these stories as, as kind of a marker of what our, man, what our human, humankind is pursuing. We long for peace. We long for peace. And it should be uh, noted that we have never had it uh, since the fall of man. Cain kills Abel. And brothers kill brothers every day here. In one way or another, there is a lack of peace between brothers. There's strife between family members. Korah's rebellion in Exodus, at the very notion of an authority being placed above them, Korah and the people rebel against 
Moses and God's designed authority. And if you remember the story, Moses falls to his face and says, please don't do this. Please don't do this. And they get swallowed by the earth. It's a terrifying story. Um, David lies and murders to hide his own lustful sin. Peace eludes us. Peace eludes humanity. Peace is at war with security. We long for peace, but we also want security. We want a guarantee of that peace. And God continuously tells us, I am not safe. All throughout Scripture, He says, He is not safe. He brings peace, and He will protect, and He will hold, but He is not safe. He's not tame. He calls himself a lion. He also calls himself a mother hen. He calls himself mighty and terrifying and hangs the the stars on nothing and the earth is his footstool and he is powerful and, and majestic and terrifying all at once and judge of all things and he is personally intimately involved with everything in your life. I love the picture in Job when God shows up in the whirlwind and he starts to terrify everybody who's there. Do you remember this story? Job says, let God come and I will ask him. I will question him. And then just a few chapters later, God shows up and Job is like, oops, sorry. I didn't mean it. God says, can you tame the leviathan and the behemoth can you call them to come and sit do you hold the stars in their place job do you make the rain fall do you make the snow come do you hold the seasons do you cause the earth to move on its axis do you cause all these things job do you do these things job goes no and then god says There's more, Job. Do you know every hair on your head? I do. Do you know every time you've taken a breath? I can count them. Do you know? And he says, I'm God. And Job, if you want peace, you need me. If you want peace, you need me. Peace comes in God. It is not safe. As we've seen, Paul here in 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us, be at peace among yourselves, and then gives us at the very end this list of things to do to be at peace. And this is no exception, this last portion, this concluding uh, salutation, greeting, what is it at the end, the sincerity, I don't know, the thing you put at the bottom of a letter. This is what this is. This is the last, these, fat, these short verses are that last uh, call to us but they deal with peace. They deal with peace. How do we have peace? And this time, instead of talking about what we do to have peace, it talks about who God is. Who God is. How we have peace. We are urged in Scripture to strive to live a peaceful and quiet life and mind our own affairs. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 We're called in Scripture to strive Wrestle to be at peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, 
Verse 14, and we are urged in Scripture, insofar as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. Be at peace among yourself. Among yourselves. Romans 12, I mean, sorry, 1 Thessalonians 5, 13. Now the power to do this, to be at peace, is not in your hands. It's not in your hands. And that's where this gets kind of, kind of difficult because the last three weeks we have spent talking about what we are to do to be at peace among ourselves with each other. What are we to do to be at peace with each other? To have a peaceful and quiet life. What are we to do? And we've spent the time going through, this is how you treat leaders. This is how you treat lazy people. This is how you treat faint-hearted people. This is how you treat ill, sick people. This is how you treat people who are evil. This is how you treat people. This is how you treat yourself. And then this is how you deal with the spirits. Like we talked about all those things. And now we're going to jump into how do you have peace with each other? And Paul's going to, going to, through his final prayer, explain to you that peace does not come by your hands, but by his, by God's hands, by the Lord's work. The power to do this is not in our hands, but in His. So Paul begins his closing prayer, his benediction. And this is actually a time when Paul might say finally or in conclusion and mean it. Because he's going to end, most of the time Paul says finally or in conclusion in the middle of a letter. Finally. And then he goes on for the same amount of time that he went on before. Like a pastor who says, in my concluding point, and you know you've got 30 more minutes. Right? That's the, uh, that's Paul. So he says here in verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So his, his statement here is both a prayer and a statement to you. Because hear it, he's not talking just to you, but he is talking to you. He's not just talking to the reader, but he's also talking to God. He's making a prayer to God while he addresses you. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So first, he gives you these two things. May God himself, the God of peace, may he sanctify you. And then he says, may he keep you blameless. May he sanctify you. May he keep you blameless. These are two things that he is praying to the Lord that the Lord will do. That he would sanctify you and keep you blameless. Sanctify means to make holy. And keep blameless means to keep holy. To keep pure. So first he says, may the God of peace. Consider that just for a second. The God of peace. What does that mean? He, one, it means he owns peace. He's the owner of peace. In 1 Corinthians 14, God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. It's, a, it's appropriate that we remember that verse right after last week when he talked about do not despise prophecies, right? If a prophecy is confusing, he's not a God of confusion, but a God of peace, a God of order. The things he says are orderly. And they bring peace. They don't bring chaos or anxiety. When God speaks, anxiety shuts down. I always love it when people tell me, 
I was having a panic attack or an anxiety attack. I was having struggles and, and I tried this 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 and, I tried this and it, nothing was working. And then I opened my Bible and I felt great. Like, yeah, of course. It's his word and his word is where we find peace because he's the God of peace. He owns peace. He's not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. In Judges chapter 6, verse 24, Gideon builds an altar to the Lord. He builds an altar to the Lord, and he names that altar, the Lord is peace. Not the Lord has peace. Not the Lord gives peace. The Lord is peace. The Lord is peace. Jesus is peace. God is peace. He is peace. He is peace in himself and you can have it by getting close to him. He gives you peace. So first he owns peace. The second thing to realize is that when it says the God of peace, you need to understand he's also the maker of peace. He's the one that makes that state of being that is peaceful. He's the one that makes it. Hebrews chapter, listen to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which pleases, that which please, is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Did you hear that? Now the God of peace, may the God of peace, this God, Equip you with everything good. The God of peace, the God who makes peace in Jesus Christ. The God who provides you peace through the good shepherd that he raised from the dead. The God who provides you peace will equip you with that which is good. Equipping you to do work. Equipping you to do things that are good, that are holy, that are right. May the God of peace equip you to do good. And then Romans 5, 1, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Jesus, he makes peace. And then Romans 16, 19, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, that peace is made by Jesus. He makes peace. So God owns peace, he's the maker of peace, and he is the foundation for your peace. He's the foundation for your peace. In Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, 6, the mind that is set on the Spirit is peace. The mind that is set on the spirit is peace. Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. The word of God is also a bringer of peace. Those who meditate on his law day and night find peace. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. We are to make our requests known to God. And in doing so, his peace, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. He is the foundation of peace. So he owns peace. 
He makes peace and he's the foundation where we find peace. So this God of peace does two things, which are actually one thing. There are two things that are actually one thing. He sanctifies you and he keeps you blameless. Sanctifies you and keeps you blameless. Now there's a little bit of theological work to be done here. There's a little bit of heavy thinking to be done here. And it's uh, a hefty theological topic. The idea of sanctification. When does that happen to the Christian? When is a Christian sanctified? And the answer is, well, is it right before when, when the Holy Spirit first moves in him, is then he's sanctified? Is he sanctified as a Christian or is he sanctified not until the very end? And the answer is yes. He is sanctified. Like any good theological question, the answer is yes here. He's sanctified in all those places, before, during, and after. Sanctification is much like driving. You're, you're driving when you get in the car and you are driving and you will be driving until you reach your destination. So you start driving, you are driving, and you will be driving. You start sanctified, you are being sanctified, and you will be sanctified. Those are all concurrent, and sanctification is is a long thing that happens over time, and also something that happened right away. It is a yes in theology. But if you're sanctified... If he sanctifies us, and we know that every work he does is perfect. If he sanctifies us and we're completely sanctified in Jesus Christ, then what does it mean that we're kept blameless? Kept blameless. So we're sanctified, and he's sanctifying us, and he's going to completely sanctify us, indicating that there's a process to be done. And then we're also kept blameless, which indicates that you're, you're already blameless. Because you're kept that way. So how does, how does that work? If you're being sanctified, so we know this is a process. Everybody has a pretty easy understanding that they're not perfect, right? Everybody gets that. Like, we look in the mirror. We know. A couple of us are a little proud. We're like, yeah, I'm awesome. But most, for the most part, most of us are honest when we look in the mirror and we see ourselves and we go, not great, um, you know, we, we recognize our own flaws so much faster than we recognize uh, our own good things. We, we recognize our own flaws so much quicker than we recognize our, our, our strengths, right? That's why it's so unsettling and uncomfortable when somebody says to you, uh, what's your greatest strength? And you're not applying for a job, right? Like when they're like at the grocery store and you're like, what's your, you know, one of the questions I get asked by some brothers of mine in Colorado is they, they will ask, what's your superpower? It's a weird question to ask, but they'll ask it. And the, the point that they're trying to drive at is there are good things in you to think about. There are good things for you to think about. Um, you know, what's something you're good at? So what a great question to ask, by the way, side point. What a wonderful question to ask somebody. You will lift them up and encourage them. And what are we told in First Thessalonians? But to edify one another and in Ephesians chapter 5, to, to build one another up, we are told to speak these things of, of goodness into people. So we see here that there are these two things being done, sanctifying completely and being kept blameless. So let's look at the first one, being sanctified. This all 
all kind of come out. So let's, let's look at the first one. Being, he himself would sanctify you completely. Sanctification is a work done in you over time. As we said, it's like driving. You start driving, you are driving, and you'll drive until you get to your destination. Some people call that justification, sanctification, glorification. You start driving at justification, you're driving at sanctification, and when you get there, you're glorified. Glorification, right? That's, that's what some people might process that. And if that helps you think of it, that's a great way to think about it. But we see that sanctification is something that continues to move on. And we, we ought to remember in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, this phrase, For this is the will of God, or the desire of God for you. The word will there being desire, yearning. The, the, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. God cares about your holiness. He cares that you are holy. It's his desire that you would be holy, sanctified, set apart, and righteous. And then remember what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. God, just for a moment, think about that verse. I am certain that he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Christ. What's so great about that verse that is all about you is that it has nothing to do with you. He who began the work, he began the work, he will complete it at the day of Christ. It's not even your day, it's his day. At the day of Christ, he's going to complete it. He does all the work in that verse on you. Isn't that freeing? Isn't that freeing? So many of our Christian brothers and sisters believe that in order to be holy, you have to white-knuckle your faith and grab hold with all that you are and do every little thing and live by some legalistic standards of law. And they, they make rule after rule after rule of, of each other and they, they, they live this abhorrent life lacking any freedom of any kind. Because, heaven forbid, they make a mistake at any point. And instead of pursuing Christ in love, they've focused on their own hands and they've white-knuckled and held on with all that they are to rules and systems. And instead of being holy in joy, they've tried to make themselves holy in law. And what happens when we make ourselves holy in law? We fail. Over and over and over and over. Rules do not help. Rules are there to show you you can't do it. And you need Christ to do it. And oh, when you stop white knuckling it and stop trying to do it all on your own, stop trying to be, be something that you're not and instead just pursue Jesus and knowing him and you, you just open your hands and, and follow what he says, accepting the forgiveness of Jesus Christ in your life, and then following after him, you learn to know who you are and you become more and more holy by virtue of your loving him. Because all of a sudden your heart changes and your, your attitude changes and you don't want the things that you wanted before. And so instead of having to put up a law to guard them or throw them off, throw them off you, you delightfully throw them away. You throw away the sins that so easily entangled 
because he does something. So sanctification is a work done in you over time. Second, sanctification is something that you participate in that is chiefly shown through your love. Sanctification is something that you participate in that, you, that is chiefly shown and displayed through your love. Consider 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11 through 13. It says here, Now may our God, Father himself, and our Lord Jesus Christ direct your, our way to you. And may the Lord, and here, here's where it comes, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So hear that. The Lord make you abound in love for one another so that he could establish you as blameless and sanctified, holy, blameless and holy. So you would be without blame and you would be sanctified because your love has increased as an evidence of that existing. Your love has increased as an evidence of that ex- existing. 1 John 4, 12 puts it this way. No one has seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So we love one another and then God is revealed. Sanctification is manifest or made known or made revealed in the way that you love others. If you love others well, there's evidence that you are being sanctified. So how do we know that he's working in us? John 13, 35. They will know you by your love. They will know you by your love. So if he's working in you, they will know you because you love. So we have sanctification is done in us. Over time, sanctification is something you participate in by your love outpouring because you're being sanctified. And then there's a measure of fullness in sanctification. Look at what he says. May the God of peace himself, may he himself, he's going to do it. May the God of peace sanctify you completely. So there's a measure to this. There's a measure to this holiness that you will be completely sanctified in Jesus. He is going to work in your heart and sanctify you. He is going to move in you. If you love, it's evidence that he is moving, that he is sanctifying. Completely implies that there's a work to be done yet, that there's still something to be done. So Paul writes to these Thessalonians and says, there is still work to be done. You will be sanctified completely in him. He will sanctify you himself completely sanctify you. You are going to grow. Christians, old saints don't become old saints overnight. Remember, we say that all the time. Old saints don't become old saints overnight. It's a process that takes time. That person that you know who's so godly that when they look into your eyes, you're afraid that they have seen every wicked thing you've done in the last week. You know who that person is? You've all got guys in your life that are like that. That you look at and you wonder, is God telling them what I did just now? Because they're so close to the Lord. 
the type of people that you look at and you, you hear talking and you go, oh my, this person's been to heaven today. Today. I'm lucky I got up and had coffee. Those types of people, they're so humble that they're hard to, hard to, to be around and yet you want to be around them all the time. You know? Those types, old saints don't get that way overnight. It takes a long time. God will completely sanctify them. So first, the God of peace completely sanctify you. It's this process. It's, it's a process that goes over time. It's done in you. It's manifested in love. And it is a, there's a measure to it. There's a completeness to it. He will finish it. And then the second thing here is may your whole spirit, soul, and body, not just part of it, but your whole spirit, soul, and body, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord So may your whole spirit and body and soul be kept blameless. So first, recognize the emphasis. He lists off spirit, soul, and body as an addendum to whole. All of you. May all of you, everything about you, that means your physical body, your soul, and your spirit. We'll talk about what those differences are just in a second. But those things, we might say, may your heart, mind, and body be kept blameless before the Lord. In American colloquialism, that probably would make sense. May your heart, mind, and body be made blameless and kept blameless before the Lord. So this this idea of whole, every part of you. God cares about every part of you. There was a heresy that arose in the first century uh, that has still is still around kind of at times today called Gnosticism, in which the body was considered separate from the spirit. And the body was bad and the spirit was good. And so you wanted to embrace the spirit and throw off the body. And whatever you did in the body didn't matter. So you could understand that would either lead to license or legalism. But there's no in between. It's either going to lead to license where you let yourself do anything with your body. Or legalism in which you don't let your body do anything. You starve yourself. And your body's just kind of a vessel there and you you don't care about your body because you're so focused on the spirit. That's a heresy and that was called Gnosticism. So if you ever run into anybody that's like, the body doesn't matter, only the spirit matters, you should go, heresy, not true. God cares about the whole body, about everything. God cares that you're physically healthy. God cares that you're mentally healthy. God cares that you're spiritually healthy. And why? Because he loves you. And they're all part of you. All of this is part of you. When you have poor self-image, remember that there's a God who looks at you going, you're mine and you're beautiful and I love you. That part of you is is mine and I love you. I, I made that part. When you have mental troubles and you're like, I don't like myself, remember that there's a God who's going... I love you and I made you and I know who you're supposed to be and we can, we can get there together. And I love you now and I'm going to love you then and I'm going to love you as you grow. I'm going to sanctify you. When you have a spiritual 
groaning. The Bible is so clear about your spirit that it says you groan inwardly and can't understand the words. And so the spirit on your behalf speaks to God for you. You know what that means? That means God understands the groaning of your soul. So much so that when you don't understand it, he steps in to explain to himself. He groans, the Spirit groans on your behalf and intercedes on your behalf. That's how much God loves you. That's how much he loves you. And that's the love that's supposed to pour out. So what's this trio that he uses? We might call it heart, body, mind uh, in our language. He says spirit, soul, and body. The spirit here, in Scripture, when Paul uses the phrase spirit, it distinctly is Christian. When he uses this phrase spirit in reference to people, it's distinctly something Christians have. It's that which was made alive in Christ Jesus. It's that spirit that was awakened. We see it in Romans chapter 1, verse 9 and 8, verse 16, that part of you is awakened and brought to life and interacts with God's spirit. And that's the spirit he's talking about here. This spirit is not alive in people who do not believe. Let me say that another way. People who don't believe don't have spirit. People who don't believe don't have spirit. According to this definition of the way Paul uses the word, people who don't believe are dead. And they don't have this spirit. So he says, may I keep that part of you blameless, that part that is awakened to him blameless. And then he says, soul. So this is the spiritual part that everybody has, the spiritual part, the religious part that every person has. The same word is used in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, when it says the natural man. That's the word here. The soulish man. You could think of it that way. The soulish man does not understand or accept the things of the spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit. This is the idea that there's a general religious feeling or spiritual spirituality that everyone has, but that spirituality is not the same as spirit. This is soul. So he's dividing the two. This is the natural man's response to God. Look at what, how much God cares for you. He wants your spirit that he made in you to be holy. He also wants your soul that is in, in born in you, that is normal, that is everyone's. He wants that too. He wants that too. Another verse that helps you understand the the soulish or the soul here when Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 15, 44, where he contrasts the soulish body, the natural body with the spiritual body. They're different. The soulish body and the spiritual body. They're different. This is the, the part of the being that is inherent to everyone. This is the part of the being that is without excuse in Romans chapter 1. That can see that God is manifest in nature and through the invisible things and the invisible qualities of nature. This is the one that is held responsible because it does, it is able to sense some level of the spirit. It just will not accept it until the spirit is made alive. That's what Paul is getting at here. Spirit and soul. There's, There's both that which is awakened in Jesus Christ, that 
wonderful new nature that you're given. And then this soul, which is this concept of like a mind, like how you think about things and and what you've been shaped. You could also think of it as uh, what is uh, given to you in Christ Jesus, the thing that is made alive, and that which is natural from birth. That idea. Um, there, this concept is there that this is your whole being. Um, then finally, the body, right? We have the body. I don't think we need to dwell too long on the idea of body. This is soma, not sarcos. He's not saying flesh. So don't get confused. He's not... This isn't a dual nature issue here when he mentions the body. This instead is a, Paul is very clearly a single nature Christian, by the way, just so you're aware, like that's pretty clear in scripture. There's one nature given to to man and that nature is either redeemed or unredeemed. And so um, that's neither here nor there. We're going too far into that. But the, the, the body here that's mentioned is the word soma, meaning like this, what you're given, this body is what he's talking about. So he's, uh, spirit, soul, and body, all of those things, your, your entire human compass, your whole thing kept blameless to the day of Christ Jesus. The whole thing, all of you. Paul doesn't want to merely mention the spirit of God that is laid in you, but, but rather all of you is kept blameless. Every part of your being, every fiber of who you are is kept blameless recognize that for you to be kept blameless as we mentioned earlier means that you are blameless you are kept blameless because he has made you blameless when you stand before god there is not a list of stuff that you've done wrong that he's checking off he's not a clipboard god he doesn't come out when you get into the throne room like we talked about earlier he doesn't walk up to you and go "Uh uh-huh um Okay, go back out and fix these things and then come back in. That's not what he does. He throws his arms open and he takes you in his hands. He says, you're home. And he stands on level ground with you. He keeps you blameless because you are blameless. Because he has made you blameless. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. You stand before him blameless. Ephesians 1, 4. He chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy, sanctified, and blameless before him. He chose us. He did it. He made us blameless. 1 Corinthians 1, 8. He will sustain you to the end guiltless. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, one of the greatest verses ever. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. You are blameless before him. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You are blameless and you are kept blameless by him. Blamelessness accompanies sanctification because you are not perfect. Let's get one thing straight. Jesus is perfect. He lived a perfect life. He did everything perfectly. He is perfect. You are not perfect. That's why you must be kept blameless. That's why you must be sanctified. Remember what we read in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12 and 13, that love would abound and increase. And what we read in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 through 10, 
that we would abound in love so that you will be blameless. And then in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 through 23, you must continue in the faith. You must continue in the faith. And then Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Let's remember this one always. When Paul says, not that I have already obtained it or am perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. It is God who does the keeping. It is God who does the keeping. He keeps. We spent three weeks discussing what we are to do. God does the sanctifying and the keeping of you blameless. You do not have to live by some law. He did not in the New Testament. God did not write down a bunch of rules and tell you, you have to measure up to all these rules to be good enough. No, he said, tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you good enough. And then I'm going to keep making you good enough. You, you just follow. You just walk where I go. And when you walk the wrong direction or when you stray one way or the other, I'm going to take you and push you back into where you're supposed to be. I'm going to handle that. I, I'm going to do this. This is, this is the way of life. God keeps you. Remember John chapter 6 when Jesus says, I know all who the Father have given me are mine. I know them and none can snatch them from my hands. Or John 10, my sheep hear my voice and they come to me because they're mine. It's one of the most awkward places ever because he's talking to a group of Pharisees that all think that they're righteous on their own. And Jesus goes, my sheep hear my voice. And he's talking about these Gentiles and these uh, Jews who don't fulfill the law, Torah school dropouts. He's talking to them and the disciples are talking about them. And he's going, my sheep hear my voice and they come to me. And implicit in that, he's looking at the law keepers who are doing this to try and be righteous, who are holding tight to laws to try and be righteous. And he says, implying you're not mine. It's kind of frightening, especially given in the world we live in today in which so many people think that they have to keep a system of rules to know Jesus. Like, I can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, can't do this. I guess all I'm allowed to do are these things. It's not rules, it's joy. These things don't bring you joy. These things do. We pursue joy because we're free. We're free to leave the things of the world and to delight in the things of God. And oh, what a delight they are if we set our minds on them. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5 is one of my favorite things to think about when it comes to God keeping us. Listen to this. Peter just kind of praising the Lord as he's introing his letter. And he says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. See, God did that. God caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. A couple things about that passage. Just a few things. One, there's an inheritance that's stored up for you. An inheritance stored up for you. 
God has done it. God has, God has stored up an inheritance. Inheritances are great because they have nothing, again, nothing to do with your work. You get an inheritance by nature of being related to the person who dies. That's how you get the inheritance. Well, God doesn't die, John. You're right. God doesn't die, but Jesus did. Jesus did, and that secures your inheritance. Now, granted, he rises again, and he's alive now, but your inheritance is secure. So you get this inheritance in Jesus Christ, our Lord, and you get it saved. He keeps it for you. He's got it in heaven for you, waiting for you. And look at it. When he tries to describe it, I love this too. When he tries to describe it, he can't tell you what it is. He can only tell you what it's not. Did you catch that? It says, this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. He can't tell you what it is. It's so great. He can only tell you what it's not. It doesn't fade. It's not gross. Defiled. It's not gross. And it's, it's not fading. It won't fade away. It won't go away. It's, it's not going to perish. It's there permanently. So you get this inheritance. It's not going to be used up. It's not going to be wasted. It's not going to be squandered. Your inheritance is permanent in heaven. And it's in heaven. And it's kept in heaven for you. Heaven is by far the greatest bank that you could put values into. Nothing can penetrate that. It will not be stolen from. It cannot be robbed. Nobody can rob heaven. That'd be a funny Hollywood movie, wouldn't it? The heist movie where they try to steal from heaven. Even they couldn't do it. Like even Hollywood couldn't imagine stealing from heaven. You can't do it. It's impossible. And it is guarded. And then look at what it says about you. In chapter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, it says, You who by God's power are being guarded through faith. By God's power, you are being guarded or kept through faith. You are kept blameless by God's hand. You are kept blameless by God's hand. You are being guarded through faith. God is the one who does the keeping all the way until Christ returns. How long? Until Christ returns. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are kept blameless. We are sanctified by God. We are kept blameless by God until Jesus returns. Encourage one another with these words. That's what we read earlier. Encourage one another with these words. These are words that should bring great heart to you. When you're struggling and having difficulties in life, trying to overcome sin or trying to overcome depression or trying to move past anxieties. We encourage one another with these words that you are going to be completely sanctified in him and that you are kept blameless until the day that he returns. And when he returns and he sees you, it's not, you're not going to be caught off guard because you're his. The people who are caught off guard are those people who want safety who want security, who want guarantees. That's not Christians. Christians want peace. And the way of safety and security and guarantees is never safe. The way is, it's not peace. Peace is never safe. 
Peace requires exposing yourself to God and trusting in Him. Peace requires surrender and trusting that He will do it. Peace requires giving over yourself to Him and life in Him. Peace is attainable in Christ. So He says, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. You're going to be sanctified and you're going to be blameless. And you're going to make it. You're going to make it to the kingdom. He's going to come back. Then verse 24, he concludes this little section by saying, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He has called you, has he not? He has called to you. He has said your name. He has said that you're his. He has, he has called to you. He has said, come to me. And you have come. All who come to me, I will not cast out. My sheep hear my voice and they come. And all who come to me, I will not cast out. They are mine. I will keep them. Right? He says he's going to do it. He's, he calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So then he concludes his letter here with these last phrases. Brothers, pray for us. We read this last week. We are to be unceasing in prayer, constant in prayer. Brothers, pray for us. Every time you think of a believer here at Salvation Grace Fellowship, I hope you pray for them. Every time they cross your mind, I hope you just pray. You don't have to spend a lot of time. I'm not telling you to like bow down in the middle of work and pull out a mat and pray. That'd be awkward. I'm telling you they come across your mind, fire a prayer off. Lord, bless them today. Lord, take care of them. Lord, I know they're dealing with this. Lord, I don't know what they're dealing with or why you brought them to my mind, but here you go. Like whatever it is, just short, quick. It takes a second. You have a connection with God that needs to be used. So pray for us. Second, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. This is awkward. Don't kiss each other. Instead, get to the principle of this. You are to be holy in your greetings with one another. You are to be loving in your greetings with one another. You are to be affectionate in your greetings with one another. Cold shoulders have no place in Christianity. They don't. And I know that we've all given them before to people who make us mad or upset, and it's perfectly logical for you to do that. However, cold shoulders are not a Christian response to anything. We are lions. We are lions. We tell the truth. We speak the truth. We boldly proclaim the truth. We don't hide behind a cold shoulder or manipulative tactics. We speak what is true. And then we love with reckless abandon. So we are to greet each other with a holy kiss. Then we are to saturate ourselves in the word. I pray here in verse 27. I put you under oath before the Lord to read this letter to all the brothers. Saturate yourself with the scripture. Read it to everybody. Read it to each other. Talk about it with each other. The scripture ought to be on the forefront of our mind at all times. If you don't read the Bible daily, you need to start. You don't have to read a lot. But you need to start, not because there's some rule for you to follow, but because it's good. You will feel better. It's that simple. I don't know how else to put that. You will feel better if you read the Bible. You will know more about Jesus and you will have more fun. Not a rule, it's joy. And then finally, 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Remember always that every letter should start with the grace of Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. Grace of Jesus Christ covering you. He will always cover you. God will keep you. He will sanctify you and keep you blameless. He will do it. He is faithful. And then, and as he does it, you will have peace. Father, we pray this morning that we would rejoice in the peace that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. That we would have life and life to the full. And that you would delight in us as we delight in you.